plate. I'm going to pray so we can get started. <clears throat> Our God and Father, we, Lord, we thank you that you are good and merciful and kind to your people, O oh God. Lord, there is not a day that goes by that you are not in complete and in total control of, O oh God. You're sovereign over all things, Lord, and we, we thank you that in your goodness and your kindness, Lord, that you, you, are, you are that, you are sovereign over everything, O oh God. So, Lord, help us this day, Lord. Help us to grow in our love for you and our knowledge of you, O oh God. Help us to um, see you, see your glory more, O oh God, as we study this topic of marriage, Lord. I pray that you would help me, God, to clearly um, explain the text, explain your Bible, O oh God, and show your people the majesty of you in this institution of marriage that you, um, that you created in the beginning, O oh God. So help us this, this day, O oh Lord. Help us this day to, to love you, O oh God, to open our eyes so that we might see a greater measure of your goodness and your kindness to us. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the, the seminar we'll be doing for the next 13 weeks is on the topic of, is on the topic of marriage. And the, our outline for today is the purpose, the power, and the paradox of marriage. So it's going to be more of like an introductory session over the whole 13, over the whole 13 weeks. So um, I have two goals over this 13 weeks. Is first and foremost is to align our thinking about marriage with what the scripture says about marriage. So as much as we may think that we have corrected for, or we believe what the Bible says about marriage, many, a many times our instincts are more in line with, or more influenced by what we see on television and the world around us versus what God has actually said about this institution. So our goal is to bring what we believe and to retrain our instincts and assumptions about marriage and have them more in line with the word of God. Secondly, um, the second, goal is to help us to see the beauty in marriage. So it's a beautiful reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. And if we understand what marriage is designed for, whether you're married or single, we can marvel at the wisdom and the perfection of God. So those are the two goals that we're trying to accomplish in this 13 weeks. So I know some of you in here are not married, which is fine because it's, it's still helpful because obviously if you plan to be married one day, you need to know what it is you, you should be doing, what you want to do and how you ought to be doing it according to the word of God. You can also, it'll help you better love and care for your married friends, your married brothers and sisters in Christ and how you ought to pray for them and how you can better help them. So the better you understand marriage, the better you can do those things. Um, also, it's just we grow in our knowledge of God. We grow in our knowledge of how God created this world and what he has designed it for. And the more we know about that, the, the better and the more we can grow in our relationship and love for the Lord. Okay? Let me offer you some do's and don'ts right off the bat. Okay? What I don't want to do 
is I don't want to discourage you if you are married and don't have an ideal marriage. None of us have an ideal marriage. So um, we are trying with all of our might and energy to struggle toward what God wants us to be by the aid of his spirit. So I don't want to discourage you, but I do hope and pray that after these 13 weeks that we can move, move, all of us move closer to what this ideal should be. So don't be discouraged if you're not in an ideal marriage. Secondly, do not use, if you're married, do not use this class as leverage in your arguments. Do not go home and start arguing and saying, well, Pastor Corey said X, Y, Z. My name should never come up in your arguments, right? Do use this class to examine your purposes for marriage what you believe the purpose of marriage is in light of what God's purpose for marriage is. So examine it in, in relationship to God's purpose. And then do use this class as a mirror to examine your attitudes, your instincts, your assumptions, and your struggles if you're married in marriage. And I hope that the main person, so the main person that you should have in mind when you're going through these things is you. Not your spouse, not your potential future spouse, but you. Amen? No amens. So, okay, so today we're going to spend a majority of our time in Genesis 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 27, please. So we'll be looking at God's purpose and intent for marriage which will lead us to understand how he intends to accomplish the purpose of marriage. So he gives us what the purpose of marriage is and then how he intends to accomplish that purpose in these verses. So in that, in turn, will show us the power of marriage, which will eventually lead us to this paradox of marriage. Okay? So which will set up... And, and so this, these concepts, these three concepts are the... Purpose, power, paradox of marriage is going to kind of like set the foundation and framework for the next 12 weeks. So today, really pay attention is what I'm trying to get at, right? Um, and if you haven't already, like I said, open your Bibles to Genesis 1, chapter, Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at first the purpose of marriage. So let me read the text here. It's uh, 127. So God created man in his own image, and in the in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So just by way of background, so those of you that don't know, I've been married 25 years and counting. So 25 years ago, my wife and I stood before a host of friends and family and the Lord and made vows to one another. We made promises to one another. And one of those was, as long as we both shall live, was one of those promises that we made to each other. And then we, they announced us as husband and, husband and wife. And 25 years later, I can honestly say the best part of my life is my marriage to my wife, Lori. And it's a testimony to God's goodness and his mercy to me and to her, right? But 25 years ago, if you would have asked me, why did I get married or what is the purpose of marriage? I honestly, at that time, would have told you 
because you don't have children out of wedlock. And my wife would have said, that's how you, you, know, you need to be married in order to find happiness and companionship. But there was a deeper purpose in marriage, in every marriage, not just our marriage, but in every marriage, that neither one of us understood or realized at that time. So in that, it, that purpose of marriage, we see, we, just, we, we see it here at the beginning of the Bible. So in, in Genesis 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our own likeness, right? And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, right? So just a few things to note here. First, we read, actually, I read 27 to 28, and then I read 26, but it was kind of out of order. But in 27, our purpose as human beings is, is that, so we were made according to the image of God. We were made in order to glorify God. That is why we exist. We do not exist because God needed something from us. It is not because God was lonely and he needed companionship. That is not why we exist. We exist to be the image of God and to glorify God. That is why we exist. He doesn't need us to be fruitful and multiply. He was completely fine filling the earth on his own. He did not need man to fill the earth, right? He didn't need man to exercise dominion over the earth. He did a perfectly fine job of doing that on his own. So God made you and I according to his image, and this means that the image of God is not something that is accidental to man, but is the, uh, it's essential to who we are as human beings, right? So when we say that we are the image of God, what I mean is, is that we're created to reflect, represent, and recognize God's glory in, in various different ways. So reflect, represent, and recognize the glory of God. That's what we do as God's image bearers. So in the same way a mirror reflects light, we should reflect the glory of God. So whenever you, we look at any human being, you ought to see in that person a, a certain reflection of God in some ways. Even in fallen man, even fallen man is the image of God. It is true that the heavens declare the glory of God, but in a, in a very unique way, a unique and special way, mankind displays and reflects the glory of God in a way that no other part of creation does. Man is the pinnacle of creation because man is made in the image of God. Okay? So when men, when humanity, when people act the way that they ought to, hear me, when we act the way that we ought to, other people are able to look at us and see something of God's love, goodness, justice, his mercy, his holiness, when we act the way that we ought to. Amen? Okay, so no higher honor could be given to us. There's no higher honor that we can have. Okay? We have the unique and glorious privilege of being made the image of God. Amen? So, we reflect God and we also represent God, right? So, man is created in such a way 
that we are able to represent God. Because this is true, when a person looks at us, like I said, they should see something as God, they should see something of God, they should see something about God. They're able to recognize to some degree who God is and what God is like and how God operates in the world. So ancient rulers, they would often set up images of themselves, statues of themselves in distant parts of their kingdoms, and these images in, thank you, these images would represent that ruler. They, they stood for his authority, and it reminded his subjects that he was indeed their king. So you see this in Daniel 3 for like King Nebuchadnezzar, he set up a, an image of himself out in the plain of Dura, and he expected his subjects to bow to that bow in front of that statue and worship him. It represented him. So man is created in God's image so that he would represent God like an ambassador to a foreign country represents that king or that nation. So in the same way, we represent God to the universe. We represent God's um, glory. We represent his authority. We represent, uh, we should support and defend and stand for and promote the things that God promotes, defends, and stands for as his representatives, all right? So when we think of being the image of God, we must think of this as involving what we do and what we are. You understand? So when we say we are the image of God, it's, it's both of those. It's our, our constitution and our makeup, our being, and how we act and what, how we live and what we actually do. Both of those together make up, make up how we are the image of God. That makes sense? So in a sense, you could say the image of God is both a noun and a verb. Okay? It's what you are and it's what you do. So it's both a description of the way in which humans, in which we function, and it's a description of the kind of beings that we are. That makes sense to you? All right. So as the image of God, like I said, we are uniquely capable of reflecting, representing, and recognizing God in ways no other part of creation can. So we recognize, the way we recognize God as the image of God is, is that being, because we are made in his likeness and in his image, we can understand who he is from our experiences. So we can discover how create, the creativity of God by our own creativity. And we can delight in his mercy when we show mercy to other people, and so on and so forth. So by looking at who man is when they are who they ought to be, I'm going to keep prefacing that. When man is are who they ought to be, right, and we, we see that and we, we watch that, we are able to recognize a shadow of the glory of God and who God is. That make sense? So again, as the image of God, we're to reflect, represent, and recognize. That's our purpose as human beings. So secondly, <clears throat> when God made man, he made him male and female. That's not a bug, that's a feature. He, that was on purpose, okay? So the purpose of reflecting, representing, and recognizing God is for both Adam and Eve. It's for both male and female, for both men and women. Both sexes are responsible for being the image of God, glorifying God, reflecting, representing, and recognizing God. Okay, so in Genesis 2, uh, we see some of that happening through marriage. Again, if, like I said, if you're not married, 
you're just as completely the image of God as your married brothers and sisters are. You're not lacking anything in terms of being made in the image of God, but it's just marriage is just a unique way that that purpose is carried out. Just like when you're single, you carry out that in a, a different, unique way. Married people carry it out in a different, unique way. That makes sense? So, <clears throat> and then this last point is, is uh, God's command in verse 28, he says, God bless them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this ver- in verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion is God's blessing. See here, see here he says, and God blessed it, and then he gave him a command, right? So when, in Genesis, you see this in Genesis 1.22, you see it in Genesis 2.3, and you see it in Genesis 9.6. So God, he blesses it, and then he explains how the purpose for that will be accomplished. So in Genesis 1.22, he said, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. In Genesis 2.3, he says, and God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work and that all he did in creation. And then in 9.1, Genesis 9.1, he says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God, so mankind's purpose as creatures made in the image of God is to reflect, I'm going to, you're going to leave here and remember that, okay? <laughs> reflect, represent, and recognize the glory of God. And this purpose was for both Adam and Eve together, and then this purpose is going to be worked out in labor and love, okay? In relationships, in ruling, work and family. So that's what he says in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Well, how are you going to do that? You got to have a wife to be fruitful and multiply if you're doing it the way that God commands, right? And to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it in a the, the practical way we do that is by working. We actually labor to do that. Yes, sir. Uh, would you not say that the, it's still the same today? We are to subdue it? Yes. Yes, you should be working. Absolutely. So, so, so remember, the purpose is to be the, the image, the, to be the image of God to reflect, recognize, and represent God's glory. And the, the means by which you do that is labor, relationships, or work, and marriage is one aspect of that. And we're, so we're just gonna drill down on, on marriage. That makes sense to you? Okay. So, it is far too easy for us to value marriage for what it produces, okay? so. We can value marriage for what it produces for us. It can, because marriage can produce happiness and fulfillment and companionship. It can do those things, right? Um, all, and it can produce children and a stable um, life and a stable foundation for society. All those things are true. All those things are good, right? But the deeper purpose for marriage has God at the center of it. The purpose that God made marriage for was to glorify him, 
Okay? First and foremost, marriage does all, can do all of these other things, but the deeper meaning and deeper purpose of marriage is to glorify God. So when we look in, so we'll continue to look at this in Genesis 2. In verse, so in Genesis 2.18, this is what the Bible says. It says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God made creation, made Adam, saw that Adam was alone, and, and said, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, from our modern perspective, because we love all the psychology and all the psychobabble, we'll look at this, and what we'll say is, is that the problem is, is that Adam was lonely. The text doesn't say that. The text doesn't even imply that. The only thing the text says is that he was alone. I can be alone and not be lonely. It's very possible. Sometimes I want to be alone. Amen? So the problem is not that he was lonely. The problem is, is that he could not by himself accomplish the purpose that God put him on this earth for. Do you understand that? Okay, so it's not that he was lonely and he needed companionship. It was that alone by himself, he could not accomplish what God made humanity for. He needed woman to do that. Man by himself cannot accomplish reflecting, representing, and recognizing the glory of God, and women by themselves cannot do that. Okay? So this is the point that, they, that the Apostle Paul is making in Ephesians 5. So in Ephesians 5, when he talks about that uh, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church, so he's describing how a husband should love his wife, all right? So a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife should be submitting to her husband as the church submits to Christ. So when he says this, like, this is not just some convenient analogy that Paul just was sitting in his room one day going, hmm, I need to think of an analogy of how the relationship is between uh, the church and Christ. No, no, no. That's why God made it. He made marriage in order to be an analogy for that relationship, not the other way around. He just, like I say, he wasn't just searching around and go, hmm, that looks good. I should use that. No, no, no. That's not what happened. Okay, it was marriage is made for the purpose of reflecting that glory between the, rela the, the relationship between Christ and his church. That's what it's for. That's the fundamental purpose of marriage. If you think marriage is for anything else, it's going to go off the rails. It's going to go off the rails in some way because that's not what it's for. Somebody tell me, what is a hammer for? Banging nails into the wall. What's a screwdriver for? Can I use a screwdriver to put a nail in a wall? Yeah, kind of. But it's going to be a whole lot of other damage around it too, right? Right? So if you use marriage for something else other than what it was created for, you're gonna, it's going to be fallout. Yes, ma'am. You say that man and woman cannot glorify God on their own, not being married? No, I'm saying if God would have made only males on the earth, he would not have been able to fulfill his purpose to glorify God without women. Men alone, not eight, I'm not talking about in this context, a single man by himself. I'm saying in terms of humanity, men by themselves cannot 
fulfill that purpose without women. That make sense to you? <clears throat> so what? But not every man is, is fulfilled or purposed for that. As Paul said, some to stay single. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. Every individual male is made for the purpose of glorifying God, okay? Whether they're married or not. Every individual female is made for the purpose and is capable of glorifying God whether married or not. As a species, men by themselves are incapable of fulfilling that purpose without a counterpart female. That makes sense? Does everybody understand that? I still got some deer in the headlight looks. So the idea of multiply the earth. They can't yes. Multiply on their own. They can't, men and women, exactly. They can't, you can't just spawn out of, without a, without a female. Right? You need women and you need men to fill and multiply the earth and to subdue it. Both and. You need both parties to do that. Working in conjunction with one another. Okay? So when I say that, I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about men and women. Yes. So uh, I just wanted to ask in terms of the glorifying God, like the men and the women aspect, I know that that comes into play uh, in regards to childbearing. Is there anything outside of it? We're going to talk about that. Just keep listening. All right. So, so everything I said up to this point, right, is theoretical, right? So I'm giving you all this theory, but all the married people in here is like, yeah, so what? Like, what can I, like, I need some, like, practical things that I can do, right? So, <sighs> most people, when they think of marriage and they start having, they want to go to, like, read marriage books and seminars and things like that, it's because they're having issues and they're having problems, and they just want to know how to fix them right? Or you're not married and you want to know what are the things I need to do practically so I don't have those problems, right? And so the problem is, is that we don't take time to drill down and find out what is God designed this for so that we execute this properly, okay? So what I mean by this is that if marriage is a portrayal of Christ's love for his church, right, it's supposed to be reflecting and representing Christ's love for his church, you need to know who's watching, right? You need to know who the audience is, who's watching. So the, uh, first of all, a few people are watching. Your spouse is watching, right? So this act of acting out Christ's love as marriage is first and foremost intended for the person that you're married to, right? My love is supposed to reflect the love of Christ. The, the, my love for my wife is supposed to reflect the love that Christ has for his church. And the, one of the main audiences of that is her, right? She sees me loving, either failing to love her properly or loving her the way that I should be. She's the first audience. I'm the audience to her. Our children are audiences. You are audiences. And the, and the world around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our family are also audiences. They see how we do this. And they'll see if it's a delight. They'll see if it's trouble. They'll see if it's good or bad. Okay? So, 
because, <clears throat> so if we think, like I said, we think that happiness or companionship or children or anything else is at the heart of the purpose of marriage, God won't be at the center, and then we won't take into account that all of these people around us are watching, and all of these pe people are learning something of God when we do this, okay? So even though, and I want to be clear about this, even though you might be a Christian, and the Lord might be involved in your life, and you might be seeking to follow him, but if you don't make the purpose in the center of your marriage to reflect his glory, right, if you don't believe that that is the purpose of marriage, that the purpose of marriage is to glorify God, then you don't understand what it's for and you're going to use it wrong. You're going to execute this wrong, okay? We must understand that marriage is about recognizing, reflecting, and representing the glory of God, okay? We respond to this goodness that we find in God right? And this glory is reflected to ourselves and to the world around us. And so that is the source and value of marriage. Primarily, that is the source and value of marriage. Not your happiness, not your companionship, but how well do you glorify God in your marriage is how you measure success in marriage. Not how happy you are, not how much accomplishments you made, not how much my, how much money you make, not how well-adjusted the kids are if they graduated from college a lot. None of that is a measure of success for marriage. None of that. Are those things good? Yes, amen, hallelujah. None of that means anything. That is not the measure of success in terms of what the purpose of marriage is. All your kids could go to Harvard and graduate and go to hell. Okay? It means nothing. So the closeness of marriage can be wonderfully happy, but if the happiness in your marriage is not driven by the glory of God, you've missed the mark. You've missed the mark. Your ability to raise children is an amazing privilege, but if your driving motivation is not the glory of God, you're missing the mark. All that you do in thought, word, and deed it should be for the glory of God. I'm trying to hammer this home. That is the purpose of marriage. First and foremost, that's the purpose of marriage. You remember last Sunday when Pastor Rollo was in the pulpit and he, he thanked God for being married 18 years and he said, what did he ask for? He said he prayed and he asked God, give me a wife that loves God more than she loves me. Right? Remember he said that? That's what you all should be asking for that your spouse is more concerned with the glory of God than anything else. Okay? Yes, sir. When you keep saying missing the mark, would that be synonymous with you're turning it to sin, or would you differ? It could definitely become an eye. If the glory of God, his question was, I keep saying missing the mark. Does that mean I'm talking about sin? Here's what can happen. If um, marriage, which is a good thing from God, if you do not understand its intended purpose, it will quite quickly turn into an idol. Right? Quickly turn into an idol. Most of the idols that people have are good things. Right? So think about it, right? God says to, uh, he makes man, 
made man his image, and, and he gives them a command, a cultural mandate to go fill the earth and subdue it, right? Fill the earth, you do that through marriage, and having children, and you subdue it through labor, through work, okay? Both of those are probably the two biggest idols that we have in the United States of America, right? You get a group of men together, it's gonna be like 37.2 seconds before we start trying to ask, what do you do for a living? Why is that? Work quite quickly becomes an idol to men, right? Marriage and children can quite quickly become an idol to women. And I'm, I'm not saying it don't happen both ways, I'm just saying generally speaking. So the very thing that God made us to do, right, will quickly become an idol if you don't understand how it's laid out in the scripture. The purpose is to glorify God. The means by which you do that is through marriage and labor. You got that? This is how you do it. This is the tool that you use to glorify him. If you turn the tool into the purpose, it's going to be sin and it's going to turn into an idol. That make sense to you? Did I answer your question? Whose question was that? was your question. I answered your question. Okay. And here's why it's so important that you have this perspective. Because you're married to a sinner. You're going to be married to a sinner. You, are, you do realize that, right? You're a sinner married to another sinner. That's why you have to have this perspective. Okay? Because when the honeymoon is over, People are going to struggle with sin, besetting sin, all their life until they leave this earth. Okay? And, it's, and sin does not produce happiness. Amen, hallelujah, somebody. It does not produce happiness. So, if you don't recognize your, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God and to reflect his grace, and his mercy, and his goodness, when you see the ugliness of your spouse's sin, you're going to go, what, what, no, I didn't sign up for this. Right? You need this perspective in order to forgive. Right? Let's just be honest. Who are the married people in the room? Okay, be honest. Is there not times in marriage that's just easy to say, I'm just going to leave? Has there not been times in your marriage when you, should, when you just was like, you know what, it would be easier if I just left. Right? But if you don't know Christ and you don't understand that the purpose of marriage is the glory of God to reflect his grace and his mercy and his goodness to your spouse, to your children, and to the watching world, if you don't have that attitude, when, it, when you start to get those feelings, you'll actually execute those feelings and leave. That's why there's so much divorce in the world. Okay? Because there's a stat that's going around that's a lie, right? The 50, the 50 percent of Christians in the, so 50 percent of the people that get married get divorced, and then they say it's the same stat in Christians. But if you start drilling down into the stats, you start to find something out real interesting. They only ask the people if they're a Christian. When you start drilling down into the data and you start asking them, what do you believe about Jesus? How often do you attend church? How often you read your Bible and what you believe about justification by faith alone, that number drops from 50 to like 12. 
right? In other words, people who are really Christian, who really understand what the Bible says and the purpose of marriage, don't get divorced. Think about it. How many people you know are married more than 20 years? How many of them do you know are not in this building? How many? See, everybody's going like this. Hmm, I don't really know. Right? You have to have this perspective. So there are a ton of teachers and a ton of resources out there that'll give you these steps to follow if you want a happy and fulfilled marriage, and it's a lie. Nothing is going to guarantee that you're going to have this blissfully joyful, romantic-filled marriage. There's nothing that can guarantee that because nobody knows what tomorrow is going to bring. Okay? It's only when we look at the deeper God-given purpose of marriage and understand that, believe it, that we can actually be successful in marriage. Amen? So, success and joy in marriage comes from recognizing, reflecting, and representing the grace of God. And and from that perspective, you can have a wildly successful marriage, no matter how crazy your spouse is acting. Amen? Right? It could be extremely successful. So the purpose of marriage means that marriage isn't fundamentally about what marriage produces, it's fundamentally about what marriage says about God, what your marriage says about God. Amen? Okay? So I'll give you an example about how this actually works. Understanding the purpose of marriage this way, how it works and helps to change and frame the way you operate in a marriage, right? So let's just say, for example, you got this ridiculously hard decision to make, right? And you're at an impasse. If you believe that marriage is about just accomplishments and making more money or checking off these success boxes that the world determines, right? As a husband, what you'll do is you can try to lead in a way to where you only get the right answer, right? And you can do that in a way that will give your wife deep suspicions about trusting leadership, right? So if she doesn't trust leadership, you'll make it hard for her to trust God who put you in leadership. That makes sense to you? So what you should do is, but when glorifying God is the purpose of your marriage, then success in, in one of these situations is helping your wife through this difficult process and helping her trust you so that she will eventually trust the Lord. That makes sense to you? My goal is not just to make more money and put more, put more toys in my kid's toy box or get my wife more jewelry. My wife is to show her Christ more, right? And so leadership, good biblical leadership, right, is like Christ. You're going to lead and love your family like Christ sacrificially. And when she sees that, she'll worship the Lord more. That makes sense to you? So like I said, back in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, our purpose is to glorify the Lord, which means, I'm sorry, our purpose is to glorify the Lord, and marriage is one of those ways that we can do that. So look at verse 28. It says, so God, cre- or, so God created 
man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So that's the purpose, to be the image of God, to glorify God. The way we do that is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, okay? So then there's a purpose in marriage. Like I said, it's deeper than what it produces. It's deeper than your happiness. It's deeper than your children. It's deeper than what it produces in society. The purpose of marriage is for two spouses, male and female, to glorify, I'm sorry, to recognize, reflect, and represent the glory of God to be this living analogy for the glorious relationship between Christ and his church and to represent and reflect that glory to the watching world, okay? So do we have any questions so far? No, good. All right, so if the purpose of marriage is to represent, recognize, and reflect the glory of God, the question is how does that happen, right? So that's, lead, that's the next point in the handout, the power of marriage. The power of marriage. So in Genesis 2, 18, if you got your Bibles, turn there. <clears throat> Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So we see here that God creates Eve from Adam's rib, from Adam's side. And Eve is fit for him, literally means corresponds to him, right? Corresponds to him. So the purpose of if if so if the purpose of marriage is to recognize, reflect, and represent God's glory. Um, but men and women don't go don't do that in identical fashions. Okay, we do that in different ways. Because because from the very beginning, God made us different. We're different. Y'all know that that we're different, right? We do different things, we think different ways, we're different, okay? And that's where the power of marriage, a good, godly, God-glorifying marriage comes from. It, and the, it's found in the fact, in those differences, okay? So it's because we're different, that's how we, we're different physically, that's how we have children, okay? Um, we have a different, men and women have a different kind of companionship. So if I'm, I'm friends with Wally, I'm friends with Minas, I'm friends with Matthew, I'm friends with Christian. But that relationship is very different than the one that I have with my wife. It's very different. Okay? Why is it so different? Because she's a woman. Right? So it's through these differences that we'll recognize and reflect who God is. That's what we saw in Ephesians 5. So then these differences are part of the design of marriage, right? The roles that men and women have in marriage, right, are a link to who we are as men and women, and these roles are not arbitrary. You understand what I'm saying? These roles are not arbitrary. So the roles that God gives a husband and the roles that God gives a wife are not arbitrary. You can't just say, well, here's a husband's role. I'm just going to give it to a woman. No, no, no. The whole thing is baked into the cake. Okay, your role as a father, your role as a husband, your role as a, as a, as a leader is directly connected to you being a man. So some of y'all don't know this. Some of y'all do. I grew up without my dad. Listen to you. 
My mother cannot be a father. As much as she tried, it can't happen. You know why? Because she's a woman. Plain and simple. I love her. She tried. It don't work. These roles are not arbitrary. It's not plug and play. You can't just put a person in them. Okay? The roles that men have are specifically designed for men. The roles that women have are designed for women. And if you try to take a hammer to put in a screwdriver through a wall, to put a screw through a wall, you're going to end up with a big old huge stinking hole in the wall because you're using the wrong kind of tool. So you, ha you have to think in, in those ways. The roles that men have are designed for men. You shouldn't be trying to do them if you're a woman. Men, the roles that are designed for women, you shouldn't be trying to do them if you're a man. They're specifically designed for, they're baked into the cake. It's part of the design, okay? So listen, here's some other things, right? So I think we draw the lines of demarcation in the wrong place, okay? So we'll say things like, um, so let me think. Okay, so like my wife. My wife is biracial. She's black and Mexican. I'm not. So I've ha had this question asked to me before, like, how is it, like, is it difficult, like, having, a, like, a, a marriage where you got different cultures mixing? I think it's a fair question. But in reality, the harder thing is, if that's, that's easy compared to, she's a woman, I'm a man. Like, I'll, like that's nothing. We can figure that out, right? But the differences that exist between a man and a woman, that's where the real issues come in, but that's also the glory, the power of marriage is because we're so different and we become one, it, it reflects more glory. Does that make sense to you? So even though the power, it's power, the power of marriage is in these differences, so early in every marriage, every person will at some point, you're going to think something like this, right? It would just be easier if my spouse would do this the way that I want them to, right? Or if you could just feel what I'm feeling, things would be so much easier, right? Everybody thought that before, right? If you just do things the way that I want you to do, it would be fine, right? Now, that's, an, that's a true statement, but you're missing a whole point of marriage, right? So what happens is when a new spouse, when spouses try to impose his or her way of doing things on the other one, so if I could, let's just say I could actually impose the way that I wanted to do things onto my wife, and I succeed at doing it, there's going to be peace, Right? But this kind of peace, it actually diminishes and weakens the power of marriage, right? So you heard the term oh, opposites attract, you know this, heard this term opposites attract. Very often it is those same differences. So these differences that we have, I'm t I keep saying that there's power in these differences, but it's the differences that drive you crazy, right? Amen? So, so a key task that you need to learn early on in your marriage is to trust the differences. Understand that they're from the Lord. They're for his good, they're for your good, for his glory, right? So when your wife 
is more emotional than you in a particular area, you shouldn't think like, man, I wish she could just be more rational and think about this more rationally like I do. Because one day, or one day, when you do realize that you're genuinely better off with her being that way, right? That when you figure that out, that those differences complement you and that they were designed like that by the Lord, that's when the power switch turned on and then your marriage can then move into what it actually is intended for to glorify God in some mighty ways. So, so much of this class for the next 12 weeks will be grappling with those differences in marriage, everything from our roles to communication to physical intimacy to children. Since these differences are a key way that God has uh, helped married people or given to us as married people to glorify him. And they're the key to the deeper purpose of recognizing, reflecting, and representing the goodness of God. Does that make sense to you? Uh, so in the last point, which is on your handout, is the paradox of marriage. The whole point of marriage, like I said, is to glorify God. In Genesis 2.20, the Bible says, the man gave names to all the livestock and birds. <clears throat> the man gave name to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no help or fit for him, right? And then you drop down to verse 24. It says, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, right? This, this is wonderful picture here, right? All of, the, all of the differences, the power of all of these differences, yet there's perfect unity. So you got this different man, different woman, and they come together as one flesh. Now, yes, that's talking about physical, but it's broader than that, okay? Because Jesus said in Mark 9, 10, he said, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother, quoting the same verse, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He's talking about more than something physical there. He's talking about the relationship itself should never be busted apart. Because when you become married, you're, you become one flesh union, right? So God's intent, the implication of this is fidelity, right? God's intent is for a husband and a wife to stay together till death do us part. That's, what, that's how he made marriage. That's what the intent of marriage was for. Okay, so in our culture, we make commitments, we break them all the time, nobody think nothing about it, okay? But marriage is qualitatively different. It's a different situation. It's not, it's not just a contract, it's a covenant. It's a lifelong permanent bond between, two, between a male and a female. Nothing should separate a marriage except death, okay? Ideally. So for a single adult, you need to understand that before you jump into getting to, before you jump into marriage, okay? Many people raise their children like this, okay? Especially young ladies, they raise their young ladies like this. I'm raising my young lady to be able to, my, my daughter to be independent, to be able to take care of herself, just in case, what? The husband leave. You're training her for the day she getting divorced. That is not how you train people for marriage. That is not the intent and role in, and that is not what marriage is for. If I train you to ride a bike and only make right turns, you'll never be able to make a left one. 
right? So look, for the married individual, this is foundational because it means that you're, you're not going anywhere. Your, your spouse should understand, I'm not going anywhere. My wife was joking around one day and she asked me, what would you do if I leave? I would simply be like, ask her, where are we going? <laughs> I'm not going nowhere. I'm here for the long haul. Your, your spouse should understand that. So if you're talking to a Christian couple who genuinely understand this, every time you bring in a problem, you know what they're going to tell you? Work it out. They're going to tell you, work it out. Because you, you don't have grounds to leave. Right? The second implication of this is holding fast. So in marriage, there's a reorientation of priorities to make the spouse primary. So after you get married, your posture toward the rest of your life changes, right? Your marriage, you, you're not trying to seek balance in your life when you get married. Your spouse becomes your number one priority, okay? Your spouse becomes your number one priority. Marriage is the context that you live the rest of your life in at that point, okay? Your approach to work, church, friendships, family, you approach those things as a married person, right? I told my son when he got married, guess what? Your mom's not the most important woman in your life no more. Your wife is. Then when he had a daughter, I said, guess what? Your mom's number three now. Right? That is not an easy thing for people to, to get their head around. Okay? But that's what it is. You're supposed to holding fast. This one flesh union is complicated because the men and the woman, they're so different from one another. But that's the whole point. That's the power in it. Because you're different, you have to show grace to one another. And then that grace is reflected to the people around you, and everybody around you can see how magnificent and glorious God is. Right? So in the next weeks that's coming up, we'll, we'll go through our roles, communication, physical intimacy, because when those things are used poorly, each one of these can drive marriages apart, okay? And marriage becomes, can be one of the most miserable places on the planet. It can be. But when used well, however, the oneness that we have as married couples in the midst of these differences is a significant way where we'll experience and can rejoice in the glory of God and his goodness. So I, just as an example, I want to give you, like, these differences. So why these differences matter, right? So I have a, a very good relationship with my oldest boy, Corlin, okay? And I can honestly say that's my best friend, right? But the only reason I have that relationship with him like that, the way that it is, is because of my wife. Because she noticed something years ago. And she sat me down and told me, if you keep going down this direction and you keep dealing with him like this, you're going to have the same relationship with him that you have with these people. And I know you don't want that. And it was just completely outside of my purview. But the reason why she was able to see it was because of her constitution and makeup was so much different than mine. So those differences are beautiful. And I bless God for that. All right? So in conclusion, when we think of what is the purpose of marriage, it is deeper than happiness, it is deeper than friendship, it's deeper than children, 
It's deeper than what it provides for you to be able to be successful in ministry or at work or out in society, okay? The purpose of marriage is a context in which we live out what it means to be made in the image of God, okay? It's by recognizing the goodness of his glory, by reflecting and representing that glory and that grace to other people around us. So it's in marriage, though we don't, men and women, we don't do this in an in a, in a identical fashion, but the power of marriage, that's the power of it, is how a man and a woman can come together very different, meld these things together in a one flesh union and reflect the glory of God. So, again, like I say, just to recap, the great task in the early part of the marriage, right, is to do not view the differences as obstacles to overcome. You got to figure out how these are glorious. God, get, God sovereignly gave you that spouse. That wasn't an accident. He gave you that man, he gave you that woman, because that's who you needed, right? You got some sin in you that only that person is capable of exposing. You got some things in you that only that person is capable of drawing out of you for good. You need that woman, that man, okay? So marriage isn't, and I just want to, just last point, marriage isn't built on a steady pace. It's not this, like, these things aren't happening day by day. It's normally built through these, like, define, these big defining moments, okay? So there's going to be some kind of betrayal or there's going to be, a, like, a full-out honest confession about some sin. And then there's going to be a realization that, oh, this person really don't know who I am. That's going to happen, like, in a moment one day, right? There's going to be times when you fail to forgive like you should have. And there's going to be other times when you discover that this person knows that I'm not as smart as I think I am, right? And she's okay with that, okay? There's going to be loss, health crises. There's going to be joy, mountain. One of the most, if you had to ask me what was the highlight of me and my wife's marriage, it would be three things tie. The day we got married, the birth of our five children, and the day my son got married. The day my son got married felt like the day he was born. I didn't get married, but that's my boy. I felt like I did that, right? So these moments, they come together. Sometimes they, they just stacked all on top of each other. Sometimes they spaced out. But it's how you respond in those moments that are going to determine if your marriage is going to be successful or not. When your spouse sins, how you respond is going to determine whether or not you're reflecting the glory of God in your marriage. It's when they sin is when you get to, it, that's how you know when that, that you actually believe that or not. Amen? So you're not looking for a friend, a BFF, you're not looking for, uh, that's not the point. Okay? It's who, which person is going to be able to help you and understand what the purpose of marriage is to, and for the glory of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.